Well, good morning. It is good to be here. Good to worship with you. Before I jump into our study, I wanted to share with you about some women's care groups that we're uh, that are either going on or going to start soon. Uh, the hope is that will that they will minister and serve some of the particular areas of challenge and struggle for for some of the ladies of our church. Uh, for example, one of the groups that has been going on is our anchored care group uh, for women who are moms or other caregiver, caregivers for those who are affected by disability. So as you can imagine, these women experience unique joys, but uh, also some very unique challenges and sufferings. And so, as I'm told, it's been really a blessing for them to get together every quarter or so and just spend a time encouraging one another. Um, so we're going to start some other groups as well. And this is how the Women's Ministry describes these groups. The women's care groups exist to provide a safe, encouraging, Christ-centered environment for ladies facing some unique challenges and suffering. Each of these groups will be led by someone who likely has or is experiencing the unique challenges of others uh, in that group, and they'll facilitate a time of prayer, learning, sharing, and fellowship for the members uh, of, the, of the group. Uh, how often they'll meet will be kind of unique to each group, uh, but it, it's meant to be more of a blessing than anything. So don't think of it as like, you know, every week, um, some of them are meeting quarterly, maybe a couple times a year, but just a chance to get together and encourage one another. And so we're really hoping there'll be a place to meet with others who kind of understand the season of life that you're in and, and you can encourage each other. Now, the reason I'm announcing it is not only because we hope that the ladies in these seasons of life know how much we care for them, how important they are to this church family, but we also, because we don't know uh, everyone who might be experiencing some of these sufferings, and so we want to make sure, as publicly as possible, we let you know about some of the groups that are going on. So again, we have the Anchored Group. This group is for women who are caregivers, uh, for those affected by disability. Uh, they're going to meet four times a year. We're starting a care group for single moms. And so if you're a single mom kind of in any season of parenting, uh, we would hope you would consider being a part of this group so you can walk with one another We'll be starting a care group for women who are caregivers or primary caretakers for friends or family. So for example, women who are helping to take care of aging parents. Um, this group, again, hopes to start by the end of the year. And lastly, we're starting a, a new group for ladies struggling with infertility. Uh, so this will be kind of an intimate time for ladies to pray, to encourage one another, and they also hope to start this fall. Now, right now, these groups are only open to Lighthouse members or regular attenders. Uh, but if one of those groups interests you, we hope that you would uh, consider joining. If you, have, if you have interest or you have questions, you can reach out to that uh, email, women at lighthousesouthbay.org. Um, or if you just want to talk to the leader and kind of find out what are we going to discuss, what is it going to be about, you can reach out there and someone will contact you. And if you're interested in serving or helping these care groups, we want to encourage you to reach out that email address as well. You can imagine there's a lot of ways to be involved, a lot of ways we can bless and, and walk with and encourage these ladies. And so if you'd like to do that, please reach out to us. As we'll discuss later in the message, we need one another. Uh, so if these groups might encourage you right now, please, please be a, be, a, be a part of one. With that, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into our study. Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for the chance that we have to walk together as a church family. And even as we discuss this morning that high calling of being a witness for our Savior, I pray that we would realize that we do this together. We do this as a family. And so, Lord, be, <clears throat> be kind to us during our study we thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are closing our study of Peter, and we're going to discuss the idea again of our witness for Christ. 
Now, there's a lot of ways that I can encourage you to share the gospel, but I think often they almost feel like those motivational messages you read on posters, right? Shoot for the moon, even if you miss it, you'll land among the stars, which I think is technically incorrect, because I think the stars are farther than the moon. I'm almost positive about that. And often it isn't really helpful because when it comes to, to being bold for the gospel, to sharing your faith with those around you, a lot of us feel more like failures than one of those motivational posters. In fact, I read some demotivational sayings once, and I feel like that describes more our evangelism. Defeat, for every winner, there are dozens of losers, and odds are you are one of them. Failure, when your best just isn't good enough. Ineptitude, if you can't learn to do something well, learn to enjoy doing it poorly. Mediocrity, it takes a lot less time and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. And mistakes, it might be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. When it comes to sharing the gospel, don't you feel like that describes you more? It's like failure, mistakes, defeat. Well, fortunately, we have more going for us than motivational sayings. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, we're finishing our study this morning. And we felt when we began the study that it would be profitable and that Peter was writing to give hope to exiles, uh, people in this world, but not of this world. He was writing to people like you and me who are trying to live for Christ, not just in a world opposed to Christ, but really in a world desperately in need of Christ. And so as we try to navigate our current culture with all that is going on, as well as consider our unbelieving friends and family, it's been good to consider this call to, to live faithfully, suffer perseveringly, and evangelize boldly all in the power of the gospel. So what I wanted to do this morning is to consider the last few verses, which are really a summary of the letter, and look at them in light of not only the letter as a whole, but really Peter's life to see how he really lived out what he preached. I want us to see kind of his bold witness and his willingness to suffer for the gospel. And I think this should be compelling for a few reasons. First, I want us to consider Peter's life because he wrote this this letter in the early 60s AD near the end of his life in some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And so in a sense, he writes after a lifetime of not only considering the gospel, but really living out the gospel. This was not hypothetical. It wasn't theoretical. He had lived for Christ. He had suffered for Christ. And not too long after he writes this, he would die for Christ. Second, I want us to consider Peter's life because I don't think there are too many characters in the gospel more relatable than Peter. I can sometimes be hard to relate to some of the characters of the scripture. They're, they're incredible stories of bravery or faith or even the miraculous. Both Peter were actually given a lot of details about his uh, shortcomings and failures. We, we read of his lack of faith. We read of his sin. We read of his failures. We read of his foolish boldness. We read him saying some pretty ridiculous things. I mean, Peter himself tells us through Mark's gospel of how he didn't often understand what Jesus was talking about and even rebuked Jesus. I mean, imagine being the person written down in Holy Scripture as the person who rebuked Christ. But in his sins and failures, there is a certain relatability that I've come to appreciate. Like, I see myself in Peter. I, I see myself in his pride and his fear and his various failings. And yet, remember, Peter's story isn't just one of sins and sufferings and shortcomings, but it's one of salvation and transformation. And in this, we really should find hope because if God can change him, we should believe that he can change us as well. And that leads to our our last idea. I want us to consider Peter's life because the transformation he experiences is nothing short of shocking. Again, Peter was with, when Peter was with Jesus, he so often stumbled, he's saying the wrong things. 
And it kind of makes sense because when you got ignorance and bravado coupled with a sinful heart, it leads to a ton of failure. And this might most clearly be seen in that one of the things that Peter is most famous for is his denial of Christ. I mean, imagine that's your legacy. You probably remember the story, but previous, just previous to Christ's death, Peter kind of boldly declares that he would be willing to die for Jesus. Then on the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter very unboldly denies him when confronted, not by like some huge Roman centurion, but by a servant girl. But all of that is what makes his ministry post-resurrection so remarkable. This person who so often stumbled in ministry, he was used to help start the church. Not, not a church, he started the church. Not only that, but though his fear was famously put on display in all four gospels, no less, he becomes this courageous minister of the good news of Jesus. Well, we'll take a closer look at this as we go, but in the book of Acts, we see Peter is like this changed man uh, it says, and when the religious leaders had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Like being willing to be beaten for Christ, that's to me is already incredible, but to rejoice in it, right? That is next level. To see how God transformed Peter is truly remarkable. And so, Again, we should find hope in this. I mean, if God can change Peter, let's trust that he can change you and me. Maybe if you sit, as you sit here, you think about your fears. You think about going to work tomorrow or walking onto campus tomorrow and knowing that you're called to share the gospel and yet being afraid to do so. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, we, we, we live in a culture that seems to be getting more and more uh, more and more progressively anti-Christian. And though our suffering for our faith is rather minimal compared to Christians around the, some Christians around the world, it seems like it will get worse before it gets better. And so we, we need grace uh, to be fearless and to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. But beyond that, we need the grace of the gospel to simply be a witness to those around us. I mean, think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus. You need grace. We need grace to overcome the worries of sharing the gospel with family members. We need grace to be willing to compromise our comfort, to make the gospel known to our friends and our coworkers. We need grace to live humbly and lovingly and faithfully so that we can make known our loving and humble and faithful Savior. Maybe most fundamentally, we need grace to change our desires and our commitments and our priorities. We need that inward bent of love to be redirected outward with hearts broken for this unbelieving world and with a passionate commitment to make Christ known. Because apart from grace, to change our desires, we're just going to pursue a Christianized version of the American dream. Make a good living, raise successful kids, enjoy various pleasures of life, pursue comfort, look to retirement, and make sure you go to church. So we need grace to reorient our hearts so that we can ask ourselves those questions like, why am I really here? Like, what is most important? What am I supposed to accomplish? What am I going to live for? Because when we do and we answer according to what Scripture tells us, we'll realize that we're here to make Christ known. In fact, it seems like one of the primary reasons that God leaves us in this fallen world after we're saved, rather than just taking us to heaven, is to be a witness for Christ. Because everything else is going to be better in heaven, except evangelism. Meaning as you think of raising your kids, of going to, to work tomorrow morning of how to spend your money, of how to interact with the secular culture, 
of what retirement will be like, all of it, you have to consider that, uh, how your life will point to Jesus. For those of you in middle school, uh, high school, college, realize that when you step onto campus tomorrow morning, one of the most important reasons you are there is to make Jesus known. As we've often said in our study of 1 Peter, to be faithful to Christ in a world opposed to Christ, we need to be a witness to Christ. Now, let's be honest, it's not a simple task. I mean, it's, it's daunting. It's hard to be excited about being a witness for Christ when we're worried what people will think of us if we share the gospel. It's hard to, to be loving and point people to Jesus when we're angry over how we're treated. It's hard to be brave for our faith when we're fearful of the cost to our relationships. Like, what if I really tell people about Jesus, about heaven, about hell, all of it? And so really the only way that we can be who we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do is if we're transformed by the gospel. The gospel has to do something in us that it might do something through us. We need it to do what on our own we would never do, be able to do. And if we're honest, we would never want to do. And so again, I'm praying that as we look at Peter's life, that we give you hope that you can be who you're supposed to be. You can have clarity, like what's important, like what really matters. You can think about your friends and your family and others who don't know Christ and just be burdened by what they need the most. You can even look at our culture, not with fear and anger, but a godly grief and yet really a hopeful love. So with that in mind, let me read your passage because it's going to guide our time. 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14 by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, verse 12 kind of offers a summary of the whole letter, the idea that we stand firm in the true grace of the gospel while walking alongside one another in love. And that gives us our key idea. We must stand for the gospel through standing firm in the gospel and standing with one another in the love of the gospel. So for our outline, we'll break down those few ideas. But first, we must stand for the gospel. Now, let's be honest, sharing the gospel and standing for the gospel is one of the harder things that we do. And so for some, it becomes almost that distasteful part of Christianity. Like we didn't know what we were getting into. Like I love being saved. I like the church thing. I don't know if I love evangelism. It's kind of like I have a nephew who really, uh, really liked clam chowder until he found out that it had clams in it. And that's when he decided this is no good. I, I think that's like, oh, I love the gospel, but wait, I have to share the gospel? But the gospel is what we're about in verse 12, again, Peter summarizes the letter and he says to stand firm in the gospel. What does it mean to stand firm? Now, is that offensive, defensive? Is it proactive? Is it reactive? Well, Paul doesn't use this word stand firm elsewhere in his epistles, but in the book of Acts, though it's sometimes used simply to describe someone literally standing, it's also used to kind of picture Peter's ministry in the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, verse 20, these angels of the Lord freed the apostles from prison, and then he tells them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Peter's response, verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, these men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And so in part, it hints at this meaning, but probably even more relevant is how Peter describes what it, what it means to stand firm just as we look at his letter. Again, he's writing to exiles. He's telling them how to, to live in a world opposed to Christ. 
And his encouragement isn't to flee persecution or even to fight it. It was to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Simply, as they interacted with their culture, they were to focus on their witness. And this is despite the, the, the horrific treatment that Christians would very soon endure. Like Peter wants them to think about that idea, like how will they spread the gospel? How will they witness for Christ? In chapter 2, verse 9, he, he gives them that calling. Pastor David read it earlier, but he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Beautiful. In other words, we are God's people, but why? To live a life of comfort, to resume upon grace, to, to live as if God is our servant, committed to making things right for us. It's for this purpose, he writes, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what they were to be about. They were to, to focus, this is what they were to focus on and what they were to live for, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Then as he continues, his main focus actually isn't on the preaching of the, the gospel verbally, even though that's definitely a part of it, but really living out the gospel in a difficult context. It was about how they act and responded to a world opposed to them because they wanted to be a good witness. And it makes sense for us as well. Our, our lives, our humility, our patience, our love is meant to say something great about our great Savior. So, for example, in chapter 2, he talks about being willing to, to subject ourselves even to things like the government and to be like Christ, willing to suffer, refusing to take vengeance all for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, don't repay evil for evil. All right, again, on the contrary, bless again for the sake of the gospel. Chapter four, he talks about trials to come that we should expect them. Why? Because it's actually a blessing to be insulted for Christ. Okay, this is what he's saying. This is our life. It is suffering, but it's always with the purpose of furthering the gospel. And so hopefully we see Peter's argument. In a context that was significantly worse than 21st century America, he says over and over, we're gonna suffer, but let's suffer in a way that we are a witness for Jesus. And it's a different mindset, right, than most, most of us have, most Christian, I think Christians have. Like both personally and publicly, we do almost everything we can to avoid suffering. But Peter tells us different. He says in chapter four, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Okay, so in other words, if you're walking in such a way that you're with Christ and you're suffering like Christ, that's the moment that we should rejoice. Now, here's the thing. This wasn't hypothetical. Peter lived this out. I mean, when I preach, sometimes I am preaching theoretically, right? Like when I, when I tell you to love your unbelieving coworkers, it's a bit hypothetical. My coworkers, they're all Christian, right? We work at a church. And so it's really easy. Like I love Monday mornings. Like some of you hate Monday mornings. Monday mornings are like one of my favorite days of the week, right? I get to be with other believers. But this isn't Peter. He's not like speaking hypothetically. He'd been forced to live this out. I read part of this earlier, but in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they're brought before the high priest who says, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem, okay, Jerusalem, with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, remember, the, the, the Jewish leaders had a lot of authority at this point. I mean, they were even able to get Christ crucified. So how would you respond to, know, to knowing that your life is on the line? Well, Peter and the apostles, they say this famously, we must obey God rather than men. And then they say, we are witnesses to these things. Okay, so he doesn't say like, hey, that's one of the things we do. It's like, that's who we are. We're, we're witnesses to these things. We're here about the gospel. We need to share the gospel. Now, expectedly, this doesn't go over well. And, and so the religious leaders began to debate whether or not to kill them. 
And then it says, they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. I mean, how hard do you have to beat a grown man to make a point, right? And remember, they had already killed Jesus. They were debating whether they should kill this group. And so the next best thing to death was going to be this beating. What do you think that felt like? How far were they willing to take this? I'm guessing it was a pain that most of us, more than most of us have ever experienced. How would you have responded? I mean, at this point in our society, it's a mess, but we're not being beaten for our faith. But I mean, just say it were to go in that way. Would you be willing to be beaten? What, what, what would you do? Would you be angry? Would you be afraid? Would you rant on, on Instagram or Facebook? This is how Peter and the apostles responded. Verse 41 and 42, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, I, I, we, for those of you who grew up in the church, you know this story. And yet, isn't it, it should be hard for us to believe that they actually rejoiced, that they got beaten and they left. And the first response was, how good was that? That we'd be worthy to suffer for Jesus. Now, the next point, we will discuss how we can have strength and boldness and even joy. But before we get there, what does this tell us? First, that, that when it comes to our interaction with, with our unbelieving world, our priority is our witness. I mean, think about what you do, what, where, where, you know, school, work, parenting, whatever it is, is your witness your priority? Right? It, it, that's what it was supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like success by the world's standards worldly achievement, raising successful kids. It's not trying to hide or fit in to the world. It's not fighting for our rights and ensuring we have personal freedoms. Most, and maybe most simply, it's not a comfortable life. Our priority has to be our witness. Remember, we don't just live in a world opposed to Christ. We live in a world desperately in need of Christ. Why? Because the gospel tells us that we're all sinners who have broken God's law and deserve eternal punishment for that. We're all on a hellbound race. We're all damned apart from Jesus. Every person you work with, every person you study with, every teammate, everyone without Jesus is, is, is facing judgment. And beloved, we need to realize this, that we live in a world that is perishing. And that's why for Peter, it was so important, despite the suffering that it invited, that he would tell people about the saving grace of God. And it has to be our passion. I work tomorrow in your home or with your family as you walk on campus, as you hang out with friends over Labor Day, as you interact on social media. What should be on your heart is what will your life say about Christ? What, how will your life point to, to Christ? Second, not only is it the priority, but our witness can be ruined. How the, the letter offers a couple of ways. One is through capitulation and compromise, right? In chapter four, he says, we should not live for human passions. We should, we should not do what the world does. And really throughout the letter, the idea is that we live in such a way that our lives don't make sense to an unbelieving world. In fact, it says people will look at a, our lives and call us evildoers. And that's a, kind of exactly what's happening now, right? For example, our view on, on marriage and gender and sex is called evil and hateful and bigoted and ignorant by the world. But nonetheless, we must never back down. We must never capitulate. We must never compromise because our, our witness depends on us holding to what we believe, on being different. And don't just vaguely think like you versus the culture. We compromise our witness with our unsaved family 
if they can't tell the difference between our lives and everyone else's. Like when we have the same priorities, like if we're just going for the same things, the same general beliefs, the same broad convictions. In fact, if the only thing different between us and everyone else is Sunday mornings, then we should assume that we don't have much of a witness at all. In compromising our beliefs about the gospel, we com compromise our ministry for the gospel. But on the other end, besides compromise, we ruin our witness through anger and sin. And if you read this letter, by far this is Peter's greater emphasis. Time and again, he talks about how graciousness should, our graciousness should point people to Jesus. He talks about not returning evil for evil, not responding in anger. Think of, of chapter three, verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. How? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, so my every online interaction, gentleness and respect. Every time someone persecutes me and I respond, gentleness and respect. As Christians, we must understand we fail our faith when we lack our convictions, but we also fail our faith when we lack love. And so kind of slow down, take that in. It doesn't matter if you're right about an issue. If you sin to defend it, acquire it, protect it, whatever, you've, you haven't done any better than the person who's capitulated to the world. I think stepping back, those two dangers Peter offers really fit most of us. For some, it's either compromise and conceding, it's abdication, even apathy. For others, there's a lot of anger and vitriol, a lot of fighting for our rights, a lot of us versus them, a lot of it's not fair. But we have to be different. We have to consider our interaction in this world uh, and think about how we can be a witness. So what about you? Like, how are you living life? When you think about your, your family that sees you, is there anything that's hugely different? Especially if your family doesn't know Jesus. Do they see in you something different? Like uniquely different? Maybe one encouragement is this. Look at all that's happening in the world and consider it from the perspective of how you can be a witness. Because I think if you do that, it changes the way you see things. Because if your witness is your passion, then the, the fallenness and brokenness of our society, it will not incite you to fear or worry or to anger and antagonism, but to compassion and a calling. Right? The sinfulness of the world will shine a bright light onto the reality that people need Christ. Here's the point of this. We live in a world in need of Jesus. And, and so from navigating a culture opposed to Christ to having our hearts broken over friends and family who are lost without Christ, we have to consider how to point people to Christ. So just ask yourself those questions. Like, how will I be a humble witness to, to those around me um, who are against what I believe? How will you respond to that inflammatory post online? How will you pr process a professor who's antagonistic towards Christians? How will you react when classmates, teammates, even friends or family look down upon you because of your faith? Because if you respond humbly, uh, lovingly, boldly, it's gonna look very different. Like on one hand, you're gonna uncompromisingly hold to what you believe and yet do it in a gracious way. You'll share about Christ as the only way to salvation in a world that holds so tightly to its pluralism. You'll actually allow the sinfulness of the culture break your heart. Like you'll watch the news, you'll see all those articles on your newsfeed and all that. And rather than just get so fired up, it'll show you how much people need Jesus. I mean, you'll even risk friendships, relationships with your family because you refuse to keep silent 
with them and you want to share the gospel with them. And so if you want to live faithfully for Christ in a world not just opposed to Christ, but in need of Christ, point, have a life that points to Christ. So we stand for the gospel. Second idea, through, how do we do that? Standing firm in the gospel. So point number two is through standing firm in the gospel. Now, the idea of being a witness makes sense. Again, regardless of what people think about whatever issue, it really has no basis on their eternity. It's about what do they think about Christ? And it doesn't matter who they are, right? It could be your overly sweet grandmother, some antagonistic cousin, a really friendly coworker, some mere acquaintance. Apart from Christ, everyone is facing judgment. And yet as clear as that is, it's also as clear how hard that is because it's going to be difficult. Like we talked about, I mean, just like you fear, like some measure of loss, the loss of reputation or friendship or security or the approval of others. You think of just the pain, you know, broken relationships and being an outsider and living as you live for your faith, the people even thinking poorly of you. So how do you do it? How do you live with that simple passion of making Christ known? To the point, maybe to this point of the message, how do we live, how do we be like Peter? How do we experience that transformation? How do we go from fearless to from fearful to fearless, from capitulation to courage. And Peter tells us it's the gospel. Look at verse 12 again. Peter writes, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Okay, we're standing firm in the true grace of God. This is referring to the gospel that he's mentioned earlier. The gospel being that though every one of us deserves judgment, Christ came into the world to be our savior. He lived perfectly like we were unable to, and then he went to the cross to suffer the punishment for every single person who's ever put their faith in him. And so by grace, through faith, we're treated like he lived, um, he was treated like he lived my life with all its sin, with all its ugliness, so that I could be treated like I lived his life with perfect love and righteousness. As we so often said, he was treated like a sinner so that we could be treated like a son. But understand, this gospel determines everything about us. In fact, if you remember, this is how Peter opens his letter. He wants him just to think about the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. That's where we start, the living hope we have in the gospel. And that foundation isn't just something they know, but it changes how they live. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and and being sober-minded. So how do you prepare your mind for action? He goes on to say, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see the idea? Like, if I'm going to be ready, then i got to start thinking about the gospel. As the, letter, as the letter continues, he does that over and over in chapter one verses, uh, in chap, I'm sorry, chapter two, verses 20 through 25. He talks again about being like Christ, not returning evil for evil, but what does he do to encourage them? He reminds them of the gospel. He himself bore our sins on his body. Similarly, in chapter three, verse 15, he talks about defending the gospel and, and not reviling and uh, be, doing things with gentleness and humility. And so how does he encourage them? He says, for Christ suffered once for sins. Like over and over, he, he, he talks about pursuing gospel ministry by knowing who we are in the gospel. And again, this wasn't just a concept for Peter. He lived this. Like he understood that he was transformed by the gospel. In chapter four, verse 13, it says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. Okay, so they think, okay, these guys, they're not educated. They seem to be very ordinary, and yet they have this boldness that's astonishing. 
That word is often translated uh, marveled. Like they, they look and they're just like amazed at this group. But how did that come about? They even know that. It says this, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. It was Jesus. They were who they were by the grace of God. They, they had been with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had experienced the love of Jesus. They'd been transformed by Jesus. In fact, later on, when, when they talk about boldness, what does it say that they just kind of spiritual willpower, you know, natural courage. It just says they started to pray. Right? They prayed, Lord, help your, your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They understood their natural response to the suffering and the persecution in the world was not boldness, so they were just going to pray for it. Interesting, they don't pray for anything outside of themselves. They don't pray for suffering to end or religious freedoms or for some version of prosperity. They pray for a change of heart. Now that sounds good, maybe a bit vague. So what does it mean practically to stand in the gospel? And it means that it's just that we live in, in light of the reality of the gospel. We live in light of who Christ is, what he has done for us, the promises he's made to us, what, who we are because he is in us. And so consider like, what gospel truths do you need to hold on to? Do you need to remember to be bold? Maybe think of a loved one that you know you should share the gospel with. Maybe you've been hesitant or you haven't done it at all. Like, what gospel truth do you need to hold on to to be bold? Let me offer just a few, just from 1 Peter 1. The gospel empowers us because it tells us we have hope, right? It says he's caused us to be born again with a living hope. So often our fears are rooted in the things that we hold on to being, th being threatened in some way. My reputation, my relationship. If I share the gospel, something's going to happen to that. But our hope in life isn't meant to be in things, it's meant to be in the living God. So we have to believe that God can use like sinful, broken, inadequate people like us to proclaim the gospel because we have this living hope. The gospel empowers our witness because it tells us that there are purposes in our trials, right? He says, so the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. I want you to think about that. Like in your evangelistic failures, in your awkward conversations, in the persecutions, God is in all of it. And he's doing something through it in you to make you more like Christ. I mean, just, just think, about, think about that. I mean, have you ever shared the gospel and it went nowhere? Like you were like just so excited, I'm going to do this, I'm going to tell them, and then nothing. God is there in that. Not just because he's going to do something in the bigger scheme of things, but he's working in your heart in that moment to do such a good work. The gospel empowers a witness because it frees us from the power of sin. Verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, right? Sin stops us from being faithful to the gospel. The gospel overcomes our sin. And of course, the gospel empowers our witness because it tells us that God will make everything right. Verse 20 and 21, he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, we realize that our real inheritance is in heaven. Our, our culture, it pursues comfort in this world. We look forward to what God is going to do in heaven. He's going to make everything right. So here's the thing. Just think about what gospel truths you need to hold on to to be bold in your faith. And understand it is an issue of faith. And we don't have a lot of time here, but... The gospel is what it is. It's our reality. It's unwavering in what it does. So the question is, will you believe it? 
right? God is faithful. He will take care of us. He gives us grace. We have nothing to fear. One day uh, he'll, he'll make everything right. Do we believe that? I remember one time growing up, we had the chance to cross this huge, amazing looking bridge and save ourselves an hour or two of driving. But my mom did not love bridges, so we drove around. So when you're a kid, you both want to be on that bridge and you want to save time, and we did neither of those things. Let's assume the bridge was safe. It's still there, by the way. It's still there. Um, the bridge is pretty unchanging, right? It's safe. It's, it's there. What's going to get my mom on that bridge is if she believes the bridge is safe, right? God is faithful. That's not up for debate. But will we believe that? Will we trust that? So think about that for a moment. What are you just not trusting in? I mean, the gospel is the reality. God is who he is. Do you believe any of that? As we move on, as you think of living by faith, our last encouragement comes with the idea that you're not alone in this. Because God, God gives us something important to encourage that faith, and that's the church family. Yeah, we, we, we stand firm for the gospel. We stand firm by standing in the gospel. But third there, uh, we do this by standing with one another in the love of the gospel. We do this together. We need to walk with one another. I remember when we were uh, um, uh, growing up at our church, our parents were part of a Bible study they called the Young Marrieds Group. And it was neat because as they got older, they just stuck together through thick and thin, through just so many, you know, probably seasons of ups and downs. That group was together for years. Now, one thing I didn't get was they never changed the name. They, they were like a decade or two into this, and they were calling themselves the Young Marrieds Group. And Young was a stretch. Um, I mean, when your son has a five o'clock shadow, maybe we've got to change the name. Like the, you know, at one time young group, young marriage group, or the, just the old marriage group. I mean, let's just lean into it. But, but again, to me, it was this picture of people just walking with one another. Like they were just together for so many years. We, we need to stand with one another. We need to be there for one another. Now, as you look at our passage, if you had one verse to end a letter on, a letter that would be read by billions through the ages, what would you have ended with? Actually, verses 10 and 11 are pretty good. If you read those, I mean, those are solid. Those are, those are the kind of things that you think about. Um, this bold declaration, we'll, we'll hear it later in the service. But what would you end with? I remember in seminary, when they talked about the conclusion of a sermon and the importance of, they, they talked about the importance of landing the plane. Okay, so they said, like, it's really significant moment in the sermon, so we lose a key opportunity if we don't put a lot of thought into the conclusion. And admittedly, early on, I just wouldn't know how to conclude things, so I would just, like, out of nowhere, all right, let's close in prayer. Like, that was it. Like, we'd just, like, be talking, and I'm like, oh, okay, let's time to close in prayer. And then I'd walk off. Well, here Peter is landing the plane. He's bringing his letter to a close, and he ends with this, greet one another with the kiss of love. So definitely not how I would have ended the letter. Maybe when I was single, like, hey, we should kiss one another. But I don't know. And we might be tempted to rush by this. It's kind of like the salutation kind of thing. But like all scripture, it is with literally divine purpose that each word is here. And so why does Paul, superintended by the Holy Spirit, include this? And the reason is this. Peter understands that if we're going to live well as exiles in a foreign land, if we're going to be faithful to Christ in a world opposed to Christ, then, then they would need one, one another. In fact, he talks about she who is at Babylon. This is referring to the church in Rome. And so he's saying that the church in Rome, Mark, they send their greetings. He, he's reminding them of the importance of relationships. And similarly, this, this kiss was a culturally appropriate expression of love and affection for one another. It represented the bond between believers. 
And then before you get too worried over how we obey this command or maybe too excited, remember that when we study scripture, we're trying to distinguish between timeless biblical principles and culturally bound examples. The culturally bound examples actually can change, right? If I were to tell you to love your neighbor, that might include things like texting someone and telling them you're praying for them or sending them an Amazon gift card or maybe a link to a sermon that you really liked, right? The, uh, the culturally bound examples change, but the timeless biblical principle is unchanging. Love your neighbor. So for us, a kiss would not be the culturally appropriate expression of love that Peter is calling for, but the timeless biblical principle remains the same. We're being encouraged to live in loving relationships with one another. Okay, let's close in prayer. No, I'm joking. So we got to land the plane, right? Now, in the previous point, just like the previous points, Peter doesn't offer a new idea, but he's simply emphasizing what he has already talked about. Demir chapter one, verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for its sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then in chapter four, he, he's talking about our witness and it's a powerful passage and he's talked about suffering. And then kind of, it seems like out of nowhere, then he mentions the church family. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. But as we pointed out, it's not a tangent. Rather, in light of the difficult call to be a witness for Christ, in light of the suffering to come, in light of eternity itself, he's saying they need one another, they need the church. And we need to be reminded of this. Though most of us would say the church is important, we have to be reminded that as the epistles teach, the church provides the context of the Christian life. It's, it's where God teaches and grows us, the place where the community, where we live in community, encouraging one another and being encouraged by one another. The church is where we worship our great God and, and use our gifts to serve others. The church is where we are both challenged and protected. The church is where we are given our mission in this world to be a light to the world. <clears throat> the church is not just what prepares us for this world, it's what prepares us for the world to come. And to our point, the church is where we stand alongside one another supporting one another as we seek to live for Christ in a world opposed to Christ. How do we do this? Chapter four, Peter says that we do this by bearing with one another and building one another up. And I think it's a good place to start. If we're going to stand firm and be humble and a bold witness, we need to bear with one another. I think one of the more disappointing things over the recent years is not that the church is trying to stand against the world, but that the church is too often taking a stand against one another. And my point isn't that there isn't things to stand for or against, but, we, but to see such a propensity to sinful anger and frustration of fellow believers when so much of the New Testament is focused on how we love, forgive, care for, and build up one another is a bit puzzling. Remember, biblically, the world isn't supposed to look at the church and see division. It's not supposed to see how we differ from one another. They're meant to see our love. I mean, just read through the Gospels, read through the epistles. They could not be more clear. More than anything, the church should notice our love. But we not only build up, not only bear with one another, but we build up one another. We encourage one another. We teach and instruct one another. We, we weep together, laugh together, mourn together, celebrate together. We offer help and hope. Right? And this is important because, again, we, I don't know, we live in a, a world that prizes independence and self-sufficiency. And we as Christians are saying we're weak. We're desperate for grace, and one of those graces is the church. Maybe you feel this goes without saying, but I just hope you don't take the church for granted. I hope we don't take this church for granted. Just to remember we need one another. With all that's going on in the world, 
Um, so many in our church grieved over loved ones who don't know Christ, those who are discouraged with so many evangelistic failures, those who are struggling to live out their faith in a morally ambiguous and com increasingly complex culture. They, they need, we need one another. If I'm discouraged because a professor is constantly berating Christianity, I need someone to encourage me and love me with gospel truth and tell me what is right and remind me of who I am in Christ. If I'm struggling to know what to do as I try to navigate a precarious workplace, I need someone to offer me wise counsel to help me think biblically so I can respond righteously and lovingly. If I'm acting unkindly online, I need someone to privately and lovingly confront me and challenge me to do better, to tell me that the content does not supersede love, to show me uh, how to hold the truth and never compromise the truth, but in a way that tells people I care for them, that I want so much for them to know Christ. If I hear my unsaved grandmother has gotten sicker, I need those who will encourage me to share the gospel, share the gospel, and then to encourage me when they don't respond how I want. If I'm suffering for whatever reason, I need those who will weep with me, who will be strong with me, be even at times strong for me, and again, who will offer truth as hope for my soul. We need one another. Let me close with this. One of the pastors pointed out how Mark is mentioned at the end here as my son, even though biologically he wasn't his son, but he was a son in the faith. And most agree that the gospel of Mark is actually the sharing of Peter's account of his life. He shared with Mark and then Mark wrote it up for, for us. And to me, it offers a beautiful picture of Peter living for what's most important and then passing on what was most important. He had this young man and what he tells him is the gospel. And you can almost hear like he's telling him story after story over the years until at some point Mark says, I, I gotta tell people this story. It's a story that offers great details of Peter's failings and yet it offers great detail of the love of his savior. And it made me think when all is said and done, what will be my legacy? Like what will I pass on to my kids? What will my friends and family and coworkers think about me and remember me? And it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I, I've talked to more than one pastor in my season of life and ministry who is having kind of a ministry midlife crisis. I don't know what like the ministry equivalent of buying a sports car is. But for me, actually the way I feel it is it largely comes out in a greater urgency than I've ever felt. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in the last third, maybe last quarter of my ministry life. Time is short, I think, which is true for everyone in this room. And so more than ever, I feel the burden of the gospel, like for my family, for this church, for the world. And then it kind of leads to regret. Like I, I wish, not like I wish I had a nicer home or more traveled more, those kind of midlife crisis. It's that my burden for the gospel wasn't, hasn't been this deep for, for longer. Now, as I was thinking about this for my life, the first people who came to my mind were those who were in a similar season of life. Because I hope more than ever, you're feeling the urgency of the gospel. I hope you're not wasting your life. I hope you don't look at this season and wonder why. I hope you don't look back at this season and one day wonder why I didn't do more. I hope the gospel is everything that you're about, but really this needs to be all of us, right? For those of you who are in sixth grade, you just came in here and maybe you thought, okay, that, that was a little bait and switch. I got Francis last week and I thought I can do this. And now you're here and you're hearing me and I'm like, whoa, seriously, for the next how many years? But understand that you need to think about the gospel in your life. Like, do your friends know Jesus? Just start there. Do your friends know Jesus? For those of you in college, like are you making decisions based on money? Like I want this major to get this job to make this money. Your life needs to be about the gospel. 
I've said it before recently, but I think some of you are probably called into ministry. Have you thought about that? Are you, are you kind of rejecting that call because of other reasons? For those of you who are, are retired, you have grandkids, again, just slow down and think, is your life about the gospel? Is that what you're passing on? Is that your legacy? And so, brothers and sisters, let's be known for the gospel because we so diligently have made the gospel known. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to be heralds of the gospel, to make the gospel known. And I pray that that would be our passion, not just as a church as a whole, but each one of us, Lord, that we'd want to make Jesus known to those around us. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.